Welcome to a University of Bath IPR policy podcast. Welcome to uh, this lecture. I, I'm Nick Pierce. I'm the director of the Institute for Policy Research, um, an institution in the university that works on public policy challenges. And I'm very pleased that this evening we have Dame Fiona Reddles here to talk to us about beauty, in particular this book that she's written, The Fight for Beauty. And you might ask yourself, what is a public policy institute doing concerning itself with the question of beauty? Aren't we supposed to worry about things like social justice or liberty or economic growth, things of this, things of this kind? Well, it is an interesting and important question. How do you think about beauty in public policy? We all know that public authorities, and you could hardly not know this in a city like Bath, are concerned with, have to be concerned with, the conservation of things, the protection and maintenance of things, even the creation of things that are deemed to be beautiful. But what does beauty mean in public policy? Do we agree on it? Do we have to agree on it? If we don't agree on it, what do we do? And how do we think about beauty alongside other objectives for public policy, like the question of social justice or the question of freedom or the question of uh, social policy objectives that we care about, housing, welfare and so on? So it's a big and important and interesting challenge. It's not one that politicians often, often tread upon, I think. Uh, the former Cabinet Office Minister, Oliver Letwin, um, better known for his intelligence and his political nous, I think, probably fair to say, um, once gave a lecture arguing for beauty in public policy. I, he's the only politician I can think of that's done that in, you know, my, in my lifetime, certainly. So... Although we have lots of arguments and debates about beauty in public policy, it's not something we often address through the lens of or as an issue or for public policy uh, activity, research and so on. So we're delighted that uh, you're here with us this evening, Dame Fiona. Dame Fiona Reynolds, is, as you will know, is um, Master of Emmanuel College in uh, Cambridge, for many years before that, uh, the Director General of the National Trust. During a period when it went, went, underwent a, a lot of growth, it opened up to the public, it did things differently. Uh, which I think many people would agree that Dame Fiona was responsible for, and before that worked in the Cabinet Office as well. So a huge amount of experience of these sort of worlds of policy uh, and also out there in the world itself, in the beautiful world itself. So over to you, Dame Fiona. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, and thank you for coming on this beautiful evening. And indeed, that is the subject of my talk, um, why beauty does play a central role. Because... <laughs> One of the extraordinary things is that while beauty is a word that we all use freely, confidently to describe places we love, experiences or views or places we've visited, it's a word we feel very comfortable with using. It is not a word that politicians use today and that you will find in public policy statements. Indeed, it's about 50 years since the word beauty was used to define legislation or, or public policy objectives. And whether we're talking about the beauty of landscape, the beauty of nature, or indeed the beauty of our cultural heritage, this, something which is so instinctive and so familiar and so delightful to us all and stirs our souls and brings us often to a, a point of transformation, politicians today seem almost embarrassed to talk about these experiences. Maybe it's because the word beauty does conjure up emotions and not something that can be measured or something that can be objectively defined. Or maybe it's actually because they, they feel awkward themselves in using the word. But as a result, when we talk about beautiful places, we've substituted a sort of management speak 
to describe something that we would probably say was beautiful, but now becomes something like ecosystem services or natural capital or biodiversity, words that simply don't touch our soul or our heart in any shape or form. And yet it wasn't always like this. Beauty was a word that once that in society we used freely, confidently. It became part of our, our, our national narrative. And indeed, when you think right back to the earliest days, Chaucer wrote that it was the beauty of an April spring that longing folk to go on pilgrimages. Actually, I feel like going on a pilgrimage myself in this beautiful, nearly April spring. The extraordinary churches that were built in the Saxon era onwards where these could have been utilitarian buildings, but they weren't. They were glorifying beauty uh, for the worship of God. And throughout our history, poets, writers, musicians, artists have all talked about beauty, have all celebrated beauty freely, perhaps especially the Romantic poets and perhaps especially William Wordsworth. But even they didn't use beauty just to describe aesthetics. There was a very real sense of kind of moral, spiritual dimension to the way they wrote. So Wordsworth, for example, in lines written above Tintin Abbey, wrote, to recognise in nature and the language of the sense the anchor of my purest thoughts, the nurse, the guide, the guardian of my heart and soul. This was beauty as a way of opening up a kind of real sense of moral responsibility, of kind of ethics, as well as the aesthetic perfection of what he was looking at. Now, of course, he wrote frequently about the lakes, and this is a contemporary view by John Glover of Thirlmere in the 1820s, before it was turned into a reservoir. This, this was what Wordsworth, tramping the hills, was so delighted by, so entranced by, but it was also the place in which you could probably argue that the movement for beauty began, because it was Wordsworth in his 1810 Guide to the Lake District that wrote about the suburban villas that were invading these beautiful valleys, wrote about the extraction of ore which was ramping up uh, to industrial levels. And perhaps most of all, he wrote about the railway, that wretched railway which was uh, arriving, the railway to Windermere, and of course about which he wrote in 1843, those words that no conservationist will ever forget, is then no nook of English ground secure from rash assault. He also wrote about the spiky larch, this extraordinary native woodland, uh, beginning to be overtaken by the spiky larch, which in his view transformed in an ugly way these beautiful landscapes. And perhaps that was the moment that the admiration of beauty tipped over into a recognition of the need for its defence. But if there was a big debate about the rash assault taking place in the Lake District, perhaps the real rash assault was the process of urbanisation which was taking over our cities. This is a very famous cartoon by Cruikshank of 1829. London going out of town, or the march of bricks and mortar, and indeed they are marching. Look at the bricks being thrown out of the kiln and landing on the poor hayricks, which are fleeing for their lives. These automatons of urbanism marching out to colonise the countryside. And these tenements decaying even as they are built because they were being built so fast and with such poor heed to any kind of standards that they were kind of terrible places 
to live. And this was happening at such a fast pace. In Sheffield alone, between 1831 and 1836, 156 new streets were built. And as I say, these were not beautiful streets. The conditions in which people were living, lack of water, lack of sanitation, lack of access to any kind of fresh air or fresh food, really created a, a national scandal, a scandal of the kind that there were parliamentary inquiries and great uh, exercises of investigation to explore the terrible conditions in which people were living. Real concerns about health and well-being and cholera and typhoid and the spread of infectious diseases. But out of all that cacophony of debate came perhaps the most important voice ever for beauty, John Ruskin. John Ruskin, a child born into that ferment, um, who had, as a child, not only had the Bible read to him several times over, so he grew up with a very strong sense of religious and moral conscience, but also, as a child, had a cyanometer to measure the blue of the sky, because he feared that growing up the sky would no longer be blue. He was a man who travelled widely. He had a, an epiphanal moment in the Alps where he watched a storm break over Chamonix and said, again, with a profound sense of, kind of moral and spiritual connection, that this, this is what beauty is, this extraordinary interaction between nature and the human experience. He spoke in public meetings up and down the country, cramming town halls full of people to hear his words about beauty, art, and architecture. And he inspired many people. He inspired William Morris and the movement for arts and crafts, uh, revival of the Gothic architecture, and, of course, he also uh, set up the Society for the Protection of, of Ancient Buildings, was set up in his memory. He also inspired this young woman, who has been a personal heroine of mine as long as I can remember, Octavia Hill, who first met Ruskin when she was teaching in a ragged school in London. And she is a very young woman. She was only a teenager herself. She used to take the ragged school children out of London, 10 miles on a Saturday, out into the countryside so that they could feel green grass under their feet and smell fresh air and pick flowers and experience beauty because they had none in their lives. She went on, as many of you will know, to become the pioneer of social housing. But alongside decent housing with a roof over people's head and enough food to eat, she was also determined to give people access to beauty. So she would try and ensure there was a, a, somewhere for the children to play, or if there was no space for a playground, she would insist on there being a, a window box of flowers, something to bring beauty into people's lives. And as time went on, she became increasingly involved in the movement to protect the green spaces of London, which were rapidly being built on. Uh, she called them open-air sitting rooms for the poor. And she worked with others to protect places like Parliament Hill Fields or Hilly Fields or Vauxhall Park, places we take for granted today, but which certainly would have been built on had it not been for her efforts. And of course, with her colleagues on the left, Canon Hardwick Rawnsley, who'd taken over Wordsworth's mantle as the defender of the Lake District, and on the right, Robert Hunter, who was the uh, lawyer for the uh, Commons Preservation Society, the oldest amenity society. These trio, here's October a little bit older, it has to be said, but uh, they set up an organisation devoted to beauty, the National Trust, perhaps the organisation best known throughout the world, and a really uh, extraordinary organisation, as, as all of you here will know. But I think what's really extraordinary is that, that their legacy was not just about looking back. 
It was not just about preserving beautiful places and protecting things that were vulnerable. Their legacy was also about looking forward, and they themselves were hugely forward thinkers. And the words of the very first planning bill to be introduced into Parliament could have been written by this trio. It says the purpose of the bill is to establish the home healthy, the house beautiful, the town pleasant, the city dignified, and the suburbs salubrious. And again, it's a reminder of how central beauty and the quality of life was seen in the urban transformation which was going on, still in response to those enormous pressures that I, I talked about earlier. And the government as indicated by its own promotion of a planning bill, uh, was absolutely convinced about the need for this rounded approach, this approach for housing and other improvements that respected people's uh, wider needs. But, of course, their efforts were interrupted by the First World War, that war that arrived as it were, so quickly without notice. And while the government became preoccupied by the war, people did not forget beauty. And there are poignant stories of young men going to their death in the trenches with copies of A. E. Hausman's A Shropshire Lad in their jacket pocket. Uh, the First World War poets who wrote so movingly about their terrible wartime experiences also wrote movingly about the England that they were fighting for. The motivation for going to war was to fight for that spirit of England. And I'm sure, um, you know, we, we, all of us could quote examples. Edward Thomas, for example, who agonised uh, for years about whether to sign up, finally signing up and being asked why he had, he stooped, he picked up a clod of earth and said, it's for this that I am signing up. And, of course, he, he died very soon into his term of service. But the government promised the returning heroes, and they were heroes, a land fit for heroes, homes fit for heroes, there's going to be a, a, a real response to the needs of the people along the lines of the pre-war legislation and the, the plans, the interrupted plans. But of course, again, as history tells us, these ambitious plans were not fulfilled. The country was broke, there was a huge influenza epidemic, the government again distracted, did not deliver, could not find the means to build the homes and to provide the uh, better lives that had been promised. And of course, into a vacuum there was always somebody willing to step. And into that vacuum stepped the speculative developers, the people who simply wanted to make a quick buck about building lots of houses. There's no doubt that that was needed, but had no interest at all in the design or the, where the houses went or any kind of sense of contributing to a, a, a community or a wider benefit. And there was outrage about this kind of uh, sprawl that suddenly began in the 1920s and 30s to spread out from every major city. There was no planning control, there was no ability to decide where housing went or how it was built. And it's remarkable how broad that, that concern was. The government shared it as much as many of the commentators. And indeed, out of this concern came a new breed of campaigners for beauty. People like Patrick Abercrombie, one of the early town planners who was instrumental in setting up the CPRE. Uh, Clough Williams Ellis, the architect whose book England and the Octopus described so vividly this octopus sprawling out, gobbling up beautiful rural England with not a backward glance. Uh, GM Trevelyan, the Regis Professor of History at Cambridge University, wrote a pamphlet, Must England's Beauty Perish, he wrote, rhetorical, of course, um, advocating the National Trust um, as the great 
uh, hope for protecting beauty. Um, J.B. Priestley wrote rather poignantly that... Uh, the 1920s, 1930s damage to the beauty of England was far greater than the Industrial Revolution, which had been confined just to a few places, because this was threatening to take over the whole country. And indeed it was. And again, the government started to respond. There was a planning bill in 1935, which began the first steps towards more strategic planning, but very faltering. And once again, those efforts interrupted by war. And once again... It was the beauty of England that was used as a kind of creed occur, an inspirational call to arms. Your Britain, fight for it now. That sense of what people were fighting for, absolutely at the heart of the government's recruitment effort. But this time, those in power were absolutely clear. Never again would people return to a shattered England. Never again would promises be broken. This time, a commitment to protecting the beauty of England, to providing for people's needs, would be met. And the wartime leader, coalition leader Churchill, was absolutely determined to create a better future after the Second World War. And indeed, as the war began, he set up the post-war reconstruction committee, chaired for a while by John Rees, who came, left the BBC and went into government for the wartime effort. A cross-party group who commissioned work from people like Beveridge on social policy, from Barlow on the future of industrial policy, from Scott and Uthwatt on rural areas and how planning mechanisms should work, putting together a post-war reconstruction plan that we would be based on how to meet both people's material needs, for jobs and housing and employment and uh, all of the infrastructure that was needed, but also their non-material needs, a very conscious focus on the way to, 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 to recognise uh, the things in public life that needed to be provided. But of course, as we all know, Churchill didn't win the election, Attlee did, and I always put this slide up, not to, just to make that point, but to just look, count the women in the cabinet. <laughs> there is one right over there, but uh, thank goodness things are different today. But it was Attlee, but, but, but Attlee picked up that cross-party consensus. The, the agenda that he implemented was very much based on the work. He'd been a member of the post-war reconstruction committee. He had been part of that consensus. And he was determined to implement those plans for which preparation had been made. So as I say, as well as, as education, health, which we all know about, housing, jobs, and, and welfare systems, the post-war government implemented for national parks, for the protection of huge areas, this is the Peak District, of beautiful countryside, for access, and this is a remarkable picture, this is Tom Stevenson of the Ramblers Association, leading six members of Parliament, of whom three were in the Cabinet, on a three-day walk in the North Pennines. Now, I would like to get six members of the present government, especially the Cabinet, on a three-day walk in the North Pennines. A reminder just of their commitment. And Lewis Silkin, who introduced the bill, said, he said, the enjoyment of our leisure in the open air and the ability to leave our towns and walk on the moors and in the dales without fear of interruption are just as much a part of positive health and well-being as are the building of hospitals or insurance against sickness. So we think we're very clever today, making the connection between you know, well-being and public access. They had it there. They understood it. Their whole vision was around creating these non-material benefits for people as well as material benefits. 
they also uh, legislated for nature protection for the first nature reserves and, and sites of special scientific interest. And finally, of course, they finally introduced proper comprehensive town and country planning <coughs> to protect uh, the countryside, but also to uh, put boundaries around the terrible sprawl. And in fact, uh, this is also the period at which the first green belts were designated. This is Sheffield, uh, which has a, a very important green belt as part of its mechanism to contain urban sprawl. And also very committed to the building of housing and meeting people's needs, but to do so in a way that almost is reminiscent of Octavia Hill. This is Stevenage in the very early 1950s. And you can see the conscious attempt to provide green space, to provide trees, to, to provide a sense of beauty and connection with nature as an integral part of the new towns. And it's really interesting that in the uh, midst of all this, there was a white paper on land, 1944 white paper on land. There's never been one since. And I think it's a quite remarkable document because it spells out in terms that are crystal clear what are the bad uses of land? And the bad uses of land are basically wasteful uses of land, sprawl and unplanned development, which waste land and make it expensive to provide services and cause danger by uh, roads that are too fast that children will get killed running over. A real kind of anger about the bad uses of land. And by contrast, the good uses of land, which aim to provide in a harmonious way to meet all the needs of society. And those needs, again, spelled out as both material and non-material needs. Now, that kind of sophisticated view of an integrated approach seeking harmony through land use, I think, was a really profoundly important part of this package. But beauty, absolutely central to that, recognizing people's need for beauty. Beauty was in that legislation the last time it was there. And part of that legacy that was to be bestowed on future generations. Now, it has to be said, I have to say that ever since then, it's been downhill all the way. Somehow we've lost that sense of passion for beauty, of recognition for beauty, of recognition for the importance of harmony and integration. And so the post-war period, and latterly my own involvement uh, since the early 1980s as a campaigner, um, have been about the, the, the fight for beauty having to be kind of revived and repeated time and time again. And in a way, it's been a kind of series of debates, which my book describes in different chapters about how, in some cases, unexpected things happened, but where beauty got lost from the agenda. So I'm just going to give you a few examples of some of the ways in which the fight for beauty has had to be revived. The first is farming, because back in the 1940s, farming was seen as a totally um, itself harmonious pursuit, that actually the practice of farming itself produced beauty, and there was no anticipation of what was to come. And what was to come, of course, sponsored by the 1947 Agriculture Act, was intense investment in increasing production for the very legitimate and important purpose of growing more food. But what got lost on the way was a kind of sense of, of, of harmony through agriculture. So we lost 
uh, huge numbers of countryside features, the intensive production um, causing damage to both nature and wildlife and, and also to landscape. Um, one of my first flights was actually on Exmoor, where in, Tom King is here, it's wonderful to see him, remember this very, very well, where the investment in improvement of agriculture, even in the National Park, which had been recently designated uh, late in the 1950s, resulted in a quarter of the moorland being lost um, in that period through in, improve, agricultural improvement. And there was a huge, huge debate in Parliament and elsewhere about it. But I have to say, a debate that did result in new agricultural policies designed to, to, to try to restore that sense of harmony. But goodness, it was a, a very bitter fight of its time. Um, hay meadows the same. 90% of hay meadows were lost in England in the years between the mid-40s and the mid 80s through, again, agricultural intensification, uh, ploughing out, intensification of pasture land, and a loss of about a fifth of our hedgerows in the period um, of the 1970s alone. And yet, as we know, farming can and does produce many, many beautiful landscapes. And one of the things I think that we need to try to get from this new debate now about how we're going to manage agricultural policy as we leave the European Union is whether we can rediscover that ambition for harmony, that sense of engagement, how can farming produce beautiful landscapes, can produce food, can provide work, can, can provide a kind of integrated, harmonious set of outcomes. And we, we must get it right. I chart in my book the pressures of, uh, have been caused by soil degradation and, and, and intensification causing really serious environmental harm. We now must get that right. There have been fights, perhaps counterintuitively, about trees too, going back to the Lake District and words of spiky larch. There was an absolute battle royal in the Lake District in the 1920s when the new Forestry Commission wanted to uh, plant lots of trees. They were trying to plant trees to uh, replenish the Navy's stock even in those days, um, the Navy, of course, didn't need wooden ships for very long, it has to be said. But uh, this was the kind of assault on the Lake District that caused huge rows. And in fact, it was CPRE that negotiated with the Forestry Commission in the mid-1930s that there should be a ban on planting in the central lakes. But that was not true of many other upland areas, which uh, had this sort of wall-to-wall sicker spruce. Uh, causing, again, huge uh, concern about its impact both on nature and landscape and, and indeed, access. Um, and when I arrived in, in the 1980s, this kind of wall-to-wall Sitka spruce with no sense of um, you know, softening the edges or diversifying the woodland was still going on. My very first fight at CPRE, CNP was actually about uh, a plantation in the Brecon Beacons, which uh, we failed. It, it went ahead, and it still sits like a sore thumb in the landscape. Um, and yet, you know, our native woodlands are extraordinarily important. Trees in the right place bring great joy, great beauty, great uh, wildlife and landscape benefit. Um, but again, there were still pressures, for, again, through um, far, uh, forestry intensification to underplant our traditional woodlands and big rows over the years about loss of ancient woodland. In fact, even to this day, HS2 and the loss of ancient woodland is, is causing a, a, a big argument. And it, it still continues. I mean, if you think about one of my last fights at the National Trust um, was when the government 
extraordinarily announced that it was going to sell off the entire public forest estate. I don't know if you remember that moment. Quite bizarre in many ways. One might have understood if they just decided to sell the conifer plantations, the commercial plantations, but no, it was places like the New Forest and the Forest of Dean with immense cultural and historic interest. But actually, that was a, a, a rather quick reversal. I remember the moment when Ed Miliband, do you remember him? Stood up in the House of Commons and asked the Prime Minister, remember him, David Cameron? And said, does the Prime Minister support the policy of his right honourable friend to sell off the public forest estate, David Cameron said no and sat down, end of, end of that particular uh, campaign. That was one of the most extraordinary uh, changes I think I ever witnessed. But yes, battles surprisingly about trees but actually also about the coast and back in the 1920s and 30s before there was any kind of planning control, there were huge concerns about this kind of development on the coast, caravans or bungalows or uncontrolled development. And again, it was CPRE and the early campaigners who drew attention to the beauty of the coast and began to get coastal planning policies in place. But perhaps, above all, the National Trust with its Neptune campaign, an extraordinarily prescient campaign from the 1960s onwards, proactively buying up beautiful coastline and protecting it, to the point that today, if you fly over the Mediterranean or other coastlines, and indeed many parts of the world, you, you, you can see how damaged uh, the coast is. And we in this country have actually pulled off an extraordinary success, not least due to those early and, and wise actions by, by voluntary bodies. There were fights about roads too, my goodness, there were fights about roads, not just because roads themselves, when they're built, create environmental damage, but because at one point, back in the 1980s, we were endlessly arguing because the government had a policy of predict and provide so that if a road was predicted to be full of traffic, then the obvious solution was to build a bigger road and then that became full of traffic and it just built up in a sort of cyclical way. And there seemed no way of challenging whether perhaps there was another solution or another, another way of looking at things. In fact, the rows, some of you will remember Swampy, do you remember Swampy at the Newbury Bypass? And, and this one, one of the most contentious was the, this is the M3 uh, through St. Catherine's Hill near Winchester, um, now actually just in the South Downs National Park. But this was a very painful moment, this historic and very spiritual landscape sliced through. This is almost the last of that particular um, breed of road. And, and again, the government did stop and did say, well, perhaps we should do traffic management, perhaps we could have different ways of, of, of meeting um, traffic demands and, and our demands to move around. And of course, the planning system itself has been the subject of many rows over many decades, of some of which in more recent years I've been involved. And some of it was because planning, though a brilliant idea and that post-war vision of planning positively to meet our needs, to decide where new development should go as well as where it should not, didn't always deliver early on as it should. And there were, there were some awful examples of complete uh, reconstruction, often of historic town centres, which back in the 1950s did give planning you know, a sticky start in, in certain areas. And of course, you know, in a sense, planning since then has always been very much in the public eye, often accused of stifling development Successive governments have proposed either to uh, relax the green belts or to relax planning controls or in many ways, you know, find uh, solutions which weakened planning. And indeed, right through to my own 
again, last experience at, at, at the National Trust where the government published a new draft national planning policy guidance framework, which had in it the words which to most of us were just you know, extraordinarily provocative, that the default answer to a planning application should be yes. Now, that seemed to strike at the heart of all of us who'd fought for balance and harmony, that planning shouldn't be about stopping things, but about guiding things to the right place, and should be about the ability, though, also to say no uh, to things that were proposed in the wrong places. And so, unusually, the National Trust had a very proactive campaign, petitions at our properties, a really strong um, campaign with immense public support, resulting in many thousands, tens of thousands of, of signatures being delivered uh, to Parliament. And in a way, it was a sort of moment, a kind of revival of some of that Octavia Hill spirit of the National Trust standing up for, for a purpose that was so clearly in line with, with our objectives and so important to the public. In fact, you know, I think our trustees had worried that there would be uh, criticism of the Trust for campaigning, but certainly I was stopped endlessly on the train, on the bus, and you know, saying, please, please carry on. We need to see the National Trust doing this extraordinary campaigning work. And again, the government did pull back, certainly by deleting those words from its planning guidance. I wouldn't say a complete reversal, but uh, certainly pulled back from the worst excesses. But yet again, you know, we have to remember, we can get this right. We can build beautifully. We, we can find the right places for good development to go. This is a rural development uh, in, near, in Gloucestershire, near where I live. Um, and this is in Cambridge, where I also live now for half the year, and uh, more than half the year. And this is a, a dense urban development, hugely popular with residents, wins on sustainability, wins on beauty, actually creates a lovely environment to live in. And perhaps above all, we need a good, strong planning system to get our cities right, because cities are where most of us are going to live, and where most of us want to live and work and to live happy lives, the contrast with the sort of awful cities of the late, early and late 19th century. Now, this is Newcastle, which has had a big urban regeneration program, but there are the beginnings of some really, really vital, in a sense, remodeling of, of urban areas to provide more sustainable lifestyles, but good homes uh, within walking distance or cycling distance of working spaces, a kind of sense of a livable, breathable, green city, um, a really exciting opportunity, but one we must grasp if we're going to find solutions. Beauty, again, makes places livable and, and happy places to live. So to hear me talk, you would think that this is all about government policy and getting it right and arguing and all the rest of it. And I suppose there is a bit of that, and certainly my book does chart the many, many ways in which getting public policy right is very, very important. But I suppose that my real message of my book, that this is actually, it's all about us. It's about us and what we value. And one of the reasons why the post-war period has been so contentious <coughs> is because it's been about this kind of fight between economism on the one hand and sort of values on the other. And I use that word economism, which is a horrible word. It means that where the economy is the sort of driving and most powerful force. I use it advisedly, partly because it is a kind of unusual word. But I also use it because I found a, a quote from an American economist from the 1940s, which seemed to sort of capture this dilemma. This is Albert J. Nock, writing in 1943. He said, economism can build a society which is rich, prosperous, powerful, even one which has a reasonably wide diffusion of material well-being. 
It cannot build one which is lovely, one which has savour and depth and which exercises the irresistible power of attraction that loveliness wields. And that seems to me to capture the absolute essence because this is really a question of whether we are just striving always for growth, always for sort of short-term material benefits, or whether we can sort of heed the words of those, that post-war coalition which talked about harmony and integration and kind of meeting our needs in a much more rounded way. But there is enormous pressure to deliver on the economy. And you think GDP has always been quoted as, well, GDP is actually a terrible way of measuring progress because GDP only is an income and expenditure account. It's not a balance sheet. And underlying everything I've said is really the fact that it's our balance sheet that we have been damaging and undermining through this kind of pursuit of economism. And yet, you know, here we all are, you know, the economy matters, it's the economy stupid, remember Clinton? You know, there's been that kind of post-war narrative going on for so long. And of course the economy matters, all of us know that. We do all need jobs, we do all need housing, we do all need um, the material well-being that befits a sophisticated society like ours. But I think it's true that we also need beauty. And the real question is, what, are we, what legacy are we creating for the future? Remember Octavia and those ragged school children and how urgently she felt was their need to get access to beauty? Well, you know, today's children, one might argue, live much more sophisticated lives, have many more material benefits than those poor Victorian children. But do they have access to nature? Well, it, the evidence is pretty concerning. Children today, young children, spend between six and seven hours a day in front of gadgets like this. The area over which we let our children roam free without parental supervision has collapsed by 90% in a single generation. And a child today is three times more likely to be admitted to hospital for falling out of bed than falling out of a tree. <laughs> now, I am not advocating children falling out of trees. I should make this clear. But actually, it is really, really important that children have the chance to explore, to connect with nature. Remember Attenborough, David Attenborough said once, he said, people will only protect what they care about, and they'll only care about what they've experienced. And so again, I'm afraid another, there's lovely National Trust people here tonight, and I, I can't resist, but this was my favourite campaign at the National Trust in so many ways. Because actually this, I'm sure, I hope you've all heard of it, but this was very much a kind of campaign about that sense of spiritual connection, not a, a campaign about material things at all, absolutely playing to that sort of passion for the future that those founders had back in the 1890s. And it's really about free-range children, children who can discover the delights of getting muddy and, and falling over, and actually maybe they do scratch their knees, but they kind of learn about how the real world works, feel connected with nature. It seems to me that this is so important and really just underpins that if we don't give the next generation contact with nature, the chance to experience beauty, then what hope is there for the future? Because we all know that we're not on an optimistic trajectory. We all know we face really big challenges as a society about the pace and scale at which we're still uh, exploiting natural resources you know, on, on a path with climate change and other pressures that we really have to think about our priorities.
And as I say, this is not about not having development. It's not about no change. It's not about a retrospective and negative view. It is simply about the fact that as humans, we need beauty. We need the things that money can't buy. We draw spiritual succor, happiness, sense of kind of memory and connectedness from experiences that are not material ones and which connect us to nature and connect us very often to other people. Money is important, but it can't on its own make us happy. And so this, to me, is, is a vital opportunity to rediscover that word beauty, to reconnect it to the political and the public language, because I believe it is there among all of us, and to inspire the fight for beauty once again. John Muir, who is the founding father of, of National Parks of America, said, this is not about blind opposition to progress, but opposition to blind progress. So I want to reunite reignite the fight for beauty and I hope you'll join me. Thank you very much. <laughs>